The following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. In the Gnostic teaching, we talk a lot about suffering. In fact, if you're familiar at all with Buddhism, the first of the Four Noble Truths is that life is suffering. That in our existence, in our craving and desiring after different aspects and experiences of life, we're actually suffering intensely. But we are asleep to this. We're not aware of it. Well, today we'll be talking about trauma. And trauma is unique in that it's an experience that cannot be easily denied and that brings us directly into consciousness of suffering. If you've ever experienced something so traumatic that the pain stuck with you even after the event had passed, or maybe now that pain has shaped your life in a very impactful way, then you understand that you have some consciousness of what suffering truly is. So you, in your own sense, have awakened some level of gnosis. Gnosis is a Greek word that means knowledge, but not knowledge from a book, knowledge that is experiential. In this tradition, we often talk about striving for gnosis as direct experience of divinity. How do we have awakened experiences internally in the astral plane? How do we see and talk to God face to face and receive answers, not just pray, but actually have that connection alive and awake within us? And so when we talk about cultivating gnosis is something that we really deeply know, not just intellectually, but with all of our being. But trauma is interesting because it's an experience of suffering that often manifests itself in the body. That even if rationally, we might say, well, I should be over that, or that shouldn't have impacted me that much, or I don't want to act like this and respond with this much, um, intensity to experiences anymore just because I was traumatized in the past, even with that rational resistance to it, we still tense up. We still feel the bodily sensations associated with the pain that we've gone through. And emotionally, if you've known anyone who's been traumatized or if you yourself have experienced trauma, it as well carries a heavy weight. 
So that's why I say it's a type of knowledge or gnosis that cannot be denied, no matter how much our rational mind tries to deny it and say, this didn't happen to me, this wasn't a big deal, this uh, shouldn't have affected me this much. It really is a chance for us to wake up. So in many ways, trauma can be a wake-up call, a chance for us to say, there is something in life, in my life, that is fundamentally wrong. This suffering needs to be changed. It can be a chance for us to explore, to seek more answers, to try to find a way to change. And for many people, they seek more existential roots to solve their problems. They seek to find a spiritual answer for why people have to suffer some horrible things, such as rape, sexual assault, child abuse, even things like divorce. Well, things that can be so painful emotionally, physically, etc. And so, on one hand, trauma presents us with an opportunity to radically change our lives. But for many people, it's very difficult to find answers or things that really work to make a change in their life, to really address their suffering. And in those cases, trauma often becomes more of a burden or an obstacle, something that only pushes us deeper into suffering, where perhaps a parent's problems with addiction when we were a child now cause us to struggle with addiction, as an example. So how do we take the risks associated with trauma and try to transform them? through a form of spiritual alchemy into an opportunity for us to rise above suffering, to become stronger, to become more wise, more aware of ourselves and of the mysteries of life. And so, when we talk about trauma, there are some interesting correlations between a medical or a psychological, you know, mainstream definition of trauma and the more esoteric or spiritual significance of trauma that I'm going to discuss today. So starting with a conventional understanding of trauma, we can look at the causes of trauma. Now, in the field of psychology, it's often referred to as big T trauma or little t trauma. We acknowledge that sometimes events that seem not so significant to many people, for example, a breakup when someone is a teenager, and feels very in love can often be dismissed as not a big deal by adults who don't really have that same perspective on life at that point. Uh, that would probably be considered a little T trauma. It still has an impact on us. It still has an effect and many lasting effects often on the way that we would look for in this example at relationships in our future. But it might not be considered a big T trauma. Big T trauma would be something like going to war and watching your best friend killed beside you, or experiencing a sexual assault, or um, perhaps being in a terrifying car accident. So these types of you know long-term abuse or very traumatic uh, incidents can be uh, both considered trauma. Now many times, different people can go through the same event and have a different response to it. And what this is frequently associated with is the uh, characteristic of resilience. Resilience still remains a bit of a mystery for psychologists, but there is a lot of research pointing to uh, the family structure and the early childhood environment 
as a major factor in terms of trauma resilience. So if someone had a very stable and loving family environment, then they might experience traumatic events or if they had a, um, with more resilience, especially if they had at least one adult figure that was a stable caregiver in their life versus people who had a lot more instability, perhaps neglect or abuse in the home can be much harder to have resilience in a variety of different difficult situations. Also want to point out that resilient, uh, or trauma can be both situational and chronic trauma. Now this impacts the brain in a very different way. Situational trauma is usually when someone's already an adult and they have an experience that is a situation or maybe a few situations that produce um, post-traumatic stress disorder. So as, as given an example, seeing someone's best friend die right beside them will be an example of situational trauma. But this actually does damage the brain. It does have a psychological impact on the brain, but it's different from chronic trauma. Chronic trauma is usually associated with childhood. It happens over a period of years. It could be years of childhood abuse, verbal abuse, um, sexual abuse, etc. And this actually changes the whole structure of the brain and the way that the brain develops. So that that individual's personality now has a new structure. So the way that they even interface with the world will be very heavily impacted by the trauma that they went through over the course of those years. Much of that has to do with the fight for survival. If you're coming home to a abusive home as a child, there's a feeling of helplessness. There's a feeling of never knowing what to expect, if today's going to be a good day or a bad day. And so that puts tremendous stress on the body, on the nervous system. And so in that case, the brain has to reorient itself to find a way to survive, to find adaptive coping behaviors that perhaps later on in life will seem maladaptive to new situations where the threat isn't so real. And finally, there is trauma that happens via commission or via omission. So often we think of trauma as someone committing an act to me that it makes me feel out of control. Being assaulted on the street would be an act of commission that could be traumatic for people, give people a real sense of helplessness and I don't know if I have control over my life. How can I know that it's safe anywhere to go? Uh, trauma of omission would be a lack of the needs that a person has. So omission could be childhood neglect uh, or constant blame and that feeling of not being good enough. So the absence of what someone needs also gets processed into the brain as a trauma and changes our brain structure. So as I mentioned here on the slide, Trauma affects the nervous system and the neural structure. One good thing is that neuroscience now has so much evidence that even past the age of our mid-20s, we are still able to restructure our brain. And meditation is a tremendous tool to be able to do so. So even though trauma codes itself and creates neural pathways that are very deeply ingrained through prolonged and continuous work, one is able to redirect and to kind of cut away those negative pathways and produce new positive pathways that change your whole perception of reality. And that also, by changing your outlook on reality, change the way that you respond to it. So perhaps you will not have one of these fight, flight, or freeze responses to situations. Take, for example, a woman who was in a domestic abusive partnership where 
you know, continually she had to be on her guard in order to defend herself from potential attacks from her partner. Now, later on, she might enter into another relationship where the partner is loving and supportive. But little things may set this woman off to respond in a very aggressive way. That would be the fight response to become completely withdrawn and cold towards her partner, which would be the flight response, or to freeze, to just totally dissociate, to become emotionally numb to the situation that she's in. And so that's just one clear example of how that might manifest. But depending on the trauma, these responses can look a little bit different, as you can imagine. And so given that those types of responses are what are programmed into the lower levels of the brain, the more instinctive levels of the brain, which is what becomes activated, it affects the entire nervous system and produces instinctive reactions without the ability to truly think consciously to have that higher thinking process where you say, hmm, maybe I'm overreacting about this situation. I should calm down. I should look at it more objectively. When the amygdala or the lower part of the brain gets activated, it's actually very, very difficult to be able to control oneself and to override that response because it's such a deep primal part of the brain. However, we do know that through meditation, as I mentioned before, we're able to gradually develop pathways and strengthen pathways that do allow us a bit of separation in those moments and to repair the damaged parts of our brain so that we can respond in better ways. So for many people, trauma leads to what seem to other people as irrational reactions. In that person's shoes, perhaps they don't even realize that they're traumatized. Perhaps they feel genuinely in this situation, it's life or death for me, I need to defend myself, I need to survive. And so they respond with an extreme reaction to the situation. But for someone else who's standing around who doesn't have that same experience of trauma, they may not understand why this person is freaking out about a certain situation, right? Now, if we step into a more esoteric understanding, I'm drawing upon teachings from the Gnostic tradition, which we have many lectures about as well, if you'd like to learn more about these. Um, we're, we understand trauma and the way that trauma happens in a different way. So yes, it's true, all the stuff that I just talked about, the biological impact of trauma. But more importantly, for our concerns, is the spiritual impact of trauma. When we experience life as a consciousness, as a soul that is perceiving different aspects in nature, we experience a variety of sensations as impressions. Now, you can live for a certain amount of time without food, without water, and even without air, but you can't exist without impressions. Even if you go off to one of the sensory deprivation tanks, still in your mind, there are impressions. There's an impression of darkness where there are thoughts. So impressions both come to us from our environment externally and are impressing upon our consciousness and our perception, but they also come internally. So it may be that we almost step into the road and a bus coming by scares us, and that is an impression that strikes the consciousness. But the result that is produced within us, the fear, the instinctive pull of the body back, you know, the thought of, oh my gosh, I could have just died right there, all of those things are also impressions. And this shows us that the consciousness, that which perceives within us, is separate from the body, 
separate from the heart and separate from the mind. It perceives these aspects of ourselves, thoughts, emotions, physical sensations, experiences in our external world, but it is separate from them. And this is very important because when we try to meditate, meditation is not just to sit on a cushion and to zone out, but to activate the consciousness that is beyond thought, feeling, and body. And so we have to have that fundamental understanding that we are not our thoughts, we are not our emotions, we are not our bodies. We are perceiving them, but they are impressions, and we do have the conscious ability to take a step back from them and perceive them without being so identified with, I am angry. This anger is me. I must act on it. I have no other choice but to separate a little bit and to realize I'm feeling anger. I'm experiencing anger. Right now I have the choice. And if I want to believe that this anger is worth doing these acts that maybe later on I'll regret, or if this anger is something I can let go of and choose a different path using my free will. So when we talk about the human machine, we understand that for most people, probably all of us here, we are much more mechanical than we are conscious. Like in the example I gave of the bus driving by, that happens in a split second and you react to it. There's no conscious choice in, am I gonna jump back from that bus? Am I gonna feel afraid? Am I gonna think these thoughts afterwards? It just happens. The impression comes in, the brain, you know, the brain which we, cons which we would call the intellectual center or the intellectual brain, the emotions, the heart, the emotional brain, the emotional center in our body, and the motor instinctive sexual center of our body related with the spine, with those instincts and the lower brain. Those three centers respond immediately, instantaneously to those reactions. In most cases, the motor instinctive sexual center is the fastest brain. And we know that the nervous system is throughout the entire body and responds instinctively before your brain can even think or send a, send a message. You touch a hot stove, your hand pulls off before you can even think about it. So that is the fastest brain. The emotional brain is the second fastest. Emotions often come before we have time to process what's really happening to us and think about it rationally. And, you know, there's a lot of research on how the brain is actually sending many more messages, sorry, the, emo the heart is actually sending many more messages to the brain and can actually have a bit of um, precognition, can actually respond to something before it even happens. And then finally, the intellectual center of the brain. So most of us think, well, I'm a rational person. I respond to life from, from logic, and I'm not going to act irrationally. I'm not going to respond emotionally or instinctively. You know, I'm an educated person or whatever the case may be. But the truth is, given a certain experience, you will see that we are designed to survive, that we are designed like machines. Something stimulus comes in, and we respond to it without thought. So why this is important is because the part of us, the consciousness, the part of us that's our soul, that is eternal, that's the part we want to activate. Because with the consciousness, we can achieve that separation and we can respond to life with free will, with choice. Not just according to our conditioning. Not just, this happened to me when I was a kid and this is the way I was raised and so I have no other choice but to respond in this pre-programmed way. We actually have a choice about who do I want to be? 
and how do I actually do that in the moment? The consciousness, when it is awakened, is much, much faster than any of these three centers. But awakening the consciousness requires certain conditions that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Now, when we receive impressions and the consciousness is not awake, this produces a disequilibrium in us. And especially over time, since most of us are running on autopilot much of the time, we're not even aware of this disequilibrium. We think, well, that's just the way that I am. If, if I perceive somebody to be disrespecting me, I'm just going to respond like that because that's my character. But truly, it may be that throughout our life we've received impressions and never transformed them. We've never looked within ourselves to say, what is happening in me when I perceive that somebody is disrespecting me? And what is causing me to respond? Do I have a choice to perhaps sink to their level and respond in kind or to rise above it and be the type of person that maybe I'd prefer to be? And that's why I say here, and we teach in our tradition, that untransformed impressions lead to conditioned behavior and thoughts. If we want to live as a free-willed individual, we cannot be living according to the program that's been conditioned into us. If we want to have the choice to per pursue a path of enlightenment, just like Buddha or Krishna, Moses, Jesus, any of these great spiritual figures who at one point were just like us, then we need to begin to radically take control over our situation. We need to stop being who we are and open up the pathways of action that allow us to become someone new. And so that's why meditation is an essential spiritual practice. Now, if you're not from an Eastern religious tradition, meditation may take the form as contemplation or prayer. But regardless, we say that meditation is not about necessarily your posture, although posture, incense, those types of things can, of course, be helpful. Meditation is really about your state of consciousness. You may be walking about through the world and have the consciousness awake. And this can be meditation. And if you've experienced a very intense situation where you suddenly felt extremely awake, that may be a spontaneous experience of meditation. But we want to, of course, work with the science of meditation to learn the conditions to be able to produce it regularly. So here's our problem of trauma, is that we have, we have impressions coming in all the time that aren't transformed, and they are conditioning us to feel certain ways, to think certain thoughts, and to respond and behave in certain ways. And if we don't want to spend our lives on repeat, feeling the same emotions day after day, thinking the same thoughts day after day, repeating the same reactions and behaviors day after day, we really want to create a new life for ourselves, then we need to be able to wake up our consciousness. Now, the founder of our Gnostic tradition, Samuel Deor, makes a very powerful and simple statement about all of this, about receiving impressions in our life. To change one's life is really to change one's own reactions towards it. A lot of us have the mentality that life is just happening to me. And yes, it is true that our environment, our situation, different systems in our world do have an impact on our life, absolutely. But what really determines the quality of our life is our response to it. So if one impression strikes us in a certain way and produces negativity, then we're having a negative experience of life. 
if we can take that same impression and experience something more positive, like gratitude or understanding, then we have changed our experience of life. Fundamentally, life is not about what objectively happens to us out in the physical world. It is about the way that we experience it. We see individuals who've been through intense hardship, war zones, like I said, trauma, childhood abuse, who have been able to transcend that and really have gratitude and experience a lot of positive emotions in their lives. And then we have individuals who've been, you know, born into wealth. And you can see that they're really miserable people. They can complain about a lot of things. Now, of course, there's every gray area in between. Not everybody who's rich is miserable, of course. I'm not going to say that. But we see that it really depends on the quality of the person in that experience more than it depends on the situation. So we have a habit of thinking, well, I'm only going to be happy if this and this and this situation happens to me, which is much of the time out of our control. In our spiritual work, we're trying very hard to flip that mentality into, I'm going to be happy if I can really come to understand my situation in life and consciously choose how I'm going to respond to it. And this is a process. This is not just wishful thinking of, oh, okay, I've been traumatized and now I'm just going to be happy about it. It's not about belief. It's something much deeper. So to get into that, we're going to talk about what is this work. I say it's a work because it requires a lot of effort, especially if trauma is deep and happened over the course of years. This is not something that's going to be erased overnight. Even, you know, from a materialistic psychological standpoint, to reverse the effects of trauma in the brain and to create neural pathways takes a long time, a lot of work. So if we have experienced trauma and have a genuine longing to be free and we're willing to do the work, we want to be free from the suffering, and we genuinely say, this is the point in my life where I'm turning it around, and I'm going to you know, radically try to take control of my life and try something new. Then we can begin to work with these methods. The methods themselves are quite simple in, in theory, but to truly put our conscious effort into it is what requires, you know, th that depends on us. It's not about whether or not the method will work as much as it's about our willingness to continuously apply it and to give it, you know, give it the time it takes to work. So in Samuel and Vior's book, Esoteric Medicine and Practical Magic, which as you can see, we have copies of the books over there, he teaches one remedy that is called the magic of the roses. So this is what I give as a precursor because many people who are experiencing trauma if they even begin to think about that trauma or if some situation in their life comes and triggers the pain from the past, they are overwhelmed with emotion and pain. And from that state, it's very difficult to cultivate the stability needed to be able to truly meditate and try to go deeper into changing ourselves. And so this remedy is a natural remedy for us to heal spiritual and emotional pain and trauma. You know, the loss of a loved one, uh, a painful breakup, or even dealing with the after effects of abuse, self-hatred, etc. So to work with the magic of the roses, one takes three glasses of water, pure water of course being better if you're able to, and then um, places one rose in each glass, positions one glass facing the north, one glass facing the east, one glass 
facing the west. Ideally, if you have an altar or a spiritual place where you like to meditate or pray in your home, you would place these glasses there, and you would sit and you would genuinely pray, reaching out to your inner divinity, whatever form that may take for you that's most powerful, you know, if that's Jesus or Buddha or Divine Mother, Divine Father, whatever that may be, and pray for healing. Pray to bless these roses and to give you the healing. And then to drink in the morning before breakfast, the glass facing the east, and in the afternoon before lunch, the glass facing the north, and before dinner, the glass facing the west. And you can refill the glasses and repeat the process for as many days as needed until you feel like you're feeling better. Now, what's important to point out here is that this is the magic of the roses. And so if we're seriously trying to work with magic or a mystical practice, an esoteric practice, we need a certain type of energy. This is not just based on belief, but it's based on our own quality of consciousness. So for one thing, it matters how much you are really conscious and sincere in your prayer to be healed. And for another thing, you also will need to utilize a very powerful force. When we think about the most powerful energy within our bodies, it's the sexual energy. What can move people to chase after a desire so passionately, with so much energy over such a prolonged period of time, as much as sexual desire, right? Sexual energy is the synthesis of everything that we are, physically, emotionally, mentally, things that we've experienced the things that we've seen and thought, all get coded genetically into the DNA of our sexual selves. And this sexual energy is not just the synthesis of who we are on a physical level, but holds a very special spiritual power. The spiritual power of our sexual energy is the power of God, power to create life. And yes, we understand this on a basic level physically. What many people are not aware of is the sexual energy's power to transform and give birth within the psyche to new states of consciousness, the ability to awaken in a higher state of consciousness, or if used in a negative way, the sexual energy can be used to awaken in lower realms of consciousness. And so that's why I put here in the slide about transmutation, that we want to transmute the sexual energy with purity, not with lust, but with love. Sexual attraction, for most of us, is always associated with lust. If I feel desire with someone, it's in, it's for, it's in a very lustful way. And that's just the only way I can think about that person. But what we're trying to do is take lust, start where we're at, you know, we all have lust, and to transform it through different practices, which are called pranayama and yoga traditions, breathing practices, where you consciously take that energy and raise it up the spine into the brain to awaken our consciousness. And to use that energy to help us to move from a lustful person to a truly loving person. Lust is all about me and what I want in this relationship or in this exchange with another person. Love is about the concern that I feel for my partner or this other individual. Love is being willing to sacrifice what I want in order to, to support the happiness of both of us. And so being able to move from that is not an automatic process. It requires a lot of consciousness. And being able to do the work of really changing ourselves into a new type of being is not an automatic process and requires a lot of work. And this type of energy 
gives us the ability to have the equivalent of rocket fuel in our spiritual practice and to awaken in that way. And so this, these practices are talked about at length in the book, The Perfect Matrimony by Samuel and Bior. He talks a lot about uh, sexual alchemy, sexual transmutation, sexual purity, and being able to be with one's partner in a way that is loving instead of a way that is lustful. So I don't have time today to really dive into it, but we do have the book, or you can read it for free online at GnosticTeachings.org. I'm just going to take one uh, quote from this book. He says, Here we are not dealing with a matter of believing or disbelieving, of considering oneself chosen, or of belonging to such and such sect. The question of salvation is very serious. One must work with the grain, with the sexual seed. Only from the sexual grain is the inner angel born. When we look at masters like Jesus, Buddha, Moses, people who had power over nature, this was not an accident. They worked to cultivate it. And from their sexual force was born a tremendous power. All of us have this capacity within ourselves. And it's not a matter of whether or not we believe it's true. It's a matter of if we do the practice and we really work with it, we see the results. We see the changes in our physicality, in our emotional center, in our mind. We see the changes in our conscious experiences being awakened in the astral plane or in dreams, etc. And so it's not a matter of belonging to any group. You can be any type of religion that you want. But it's a matter of really working sincerely with the science. So I begin with this practice, transmutation, as the basis. Because although much of the work is in the next two practices I'm going to talk about, when we're, when we're trying to resolve our trauma. Without this basis, we can only go so far. Meditation will be helpful. Uh, magic of the roses might be helpful. But in order to create a truly permanent change in our consciousness, not just in our mind or our mental pathways, but in our consciousness, in the part of us that will move on to another lifetime, we need something much more powerful. And sexual energy is the root of who we are, spiritually and physically. So the real intense work of trying to overcome trauma is in meditation. It's only through meditation that we can comprehend deeply the causes of our suffering. If we've experienced uh, any impression in life, and it seems to be stuck, and we're going around and around and around in circles over it, maybe we're thinking about it or we can't stop feeling or reacting to it, being in meditation, calming the three brains, the mind, the heart, and the body, sitting in relaxation and achieving the awakening of that consciousness and separating enough from the experiences that we're having emotionally, mentally, or physically allows us to see what is truly happening to us in a more objective way, to experience it with more consciousness. So there's a whole book about this as well, The Revolution of the Dialectic, the Samael and Dior. And he points out many different techniques for being able to meditate because if you've ever tried to look at your mind, it's a very complex place. And for most of us, when we begin meditating, it's a very chaotic experience. It's like, I can't pay attention for five seconds. How am I supposed to go deeply into comprehending the causes of suffering in my mind? It takes time to develop relaxation, to find a posture and, you know, uh, an ability to create relaxation within yourself in those three centers. It also takes time to develop concentration. 
to be able to concentrate on our mind and our experience with such vividness and alert, alertness that we can stay awake even as the body relaxes into sleepiness. But in addition to that, we have other challenges. And when it comes to trauma, there are a lot of these challenges. The mind has infinite defense mechanisms to protect itself. If you're trying to work on trauma or something that's very painful for you, a wound that you've carried for a very long time, the mind will try to guard itself so that you can't go there. There's a reason that many traumatic memories get repressed or that we don't like to think about the past and the bad things that happened. It's because the mind is trying to protect itself from pain. You know, this instinct in us to go automatically towards pleasure and to go away from pain. Unfortunately, just by ignoring something, we don't resolve it. We don't fix it. So meditation, like I said, is really diving in to do the deep work to create a lasting change in ourselves because our unconscious mind will respond and react to situations before we have time to think about it. So if we go deep and we remove those unconscious structures and mechanisms within our consciousness, our psyche, then we can respond with free will instead of as machines. As Samuel and Viewer writes in this book, the difficulty of profound introspective analysis of our mind lies in countertransference. So countertransference, when we think about this in a uh, therapeutic setting, a clinical setting, is about reflecting a past trauma onto someone or something outside of us. So if I say, let's say that that in that situation of uh, the woman who was in a abusive partnership, in that case, um, she might try to repress that and move on, but when she enters into a new relationship, even if it's a healthy partnership, that will transfer. All of that trauma will transfer onto the new person or transfer onto different traumatic situations and produce the same reactions. So even though objectively these are two very different people and these situations may be very different, subjectively, within that person's experience of life, it is the same experience. They're not conscious of this. They say, no, no, it's, it's this guy. He's treating me bad just like my ex-husband or whatever. But really, it is within ourselves that is projected onto life. I want to go back again to that earlier statement about to change one's life is really to change one's own reaction towards it. So that's the flip around, to not, even if we have been victimized, which many of us in life have been, there's some bad people out there, right? To take responsibility for our life and how we're going to react to it anyway. To say, even though these terrible things happened to me and these people did this to me, I'm not going to sit around and blame other people and, and persist in my pain. I really want to be free. I really want to say that no matter what happened to me, I want to be free from this and I want to choose how I respond and not be conditioned. So that's why the difficulty is countertransference. Countertransference tries to look everywhere else but at me and my experience and how I'm responding to this. It does not want to look at the pain. So Tzalmah and Bihar goes on to say that this difficulty of countertransference is eliminated through structural and transactional analysis. That sounds very technical. But if we are sitting in meditation, and we have achieved enough relaxation and concentration and stability to separate consciously from our experience, from our thoughts, to observe our thoughts. This is not to have a completely silent mind, but to have a silence that observes the mind, that observes those thoughts. 
and it serves those emotions and those bodily sensations, then we are able to see that the mind has a certain structure. It has its defenses, it has its walls. In an example, if someone was uh, broken up with and, and um, this partner did something to, to really hurt the man in question and then he uh, responded to, to shut this person out and to try to put it all in the past. Then in that case, one of the structures is, I don't think about that, that's over, that's in the past, I'm over it, all right? This is one defense. So there's a certain structure. And if this person sits in meditation and he tries to look at that and he says, well, maybe there still is some pain there. Maybe I'm not as over it as I thought because something reminded me today about it and, and maybe there's some pain there. The mind will have a transaction. It will move on to some other defense. It will say, uh-oh, he's getting through this wall. So what's this other wall? So anger might come up and say, well, really, I didn't do anything wrong in this situation. Uh, she did everything wrong, and she was the bad person. So again, we see the countertransference, and the the uh, the repression or the ignorance gets transferred over to anger. And when you think, okay, well, I don't want to be this anger. I don't want to blame the other person. I want to be the better person. Then that transaction can move over to pride. But really, I'm a good person, and I was so good to her. And you know, it, whatever the case may be, for any variety of situations, we have to sit there and have gnosis of our own experience. Deeply become conscious of our experience and what happened, not by analyzing in the mind, but observing the structure of the mind and observing the transactions and the movements of the mind until finally the mind has to stop deflecting and has to just let you look at the thing that you perhaps for a long time have not looked at. And that's why Salman Barak goes on to say it's important to segregate and to dissolve certain undesirable psychic aggregates that are fixed in our mind in a traumatic matter. So the aggregates in our mind would be something like that structure of anger, or that structure of repression, or that structure of pride. And they work together like friends, and that's the transaction. So we want to set, segregate them to say, ah, okay, well it just deflected over here, but I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna focus on that until I've been able to dissolve it, to say, I see this for what it is. I recognize and understand why this is here, and I can consciously choose to eliminate it and let it go, to say, it's just not true and it has no power over me anymore. So, as I mentioned before, belief and just pushing it down and thinking positive thinking is not enough. We need comprehension. We need to go deeply in meditation and really see it for what it is in order to achieve a lasting change. And that's why this is a work of months or years, because continually in our daily life, trauma resurfaces, and continually we have to make that choice that our work to change ourselves is a priority, and that we're willing to again and again go and eliminate the different unconscious mechanisms within ourselves, things that have been fixed there as part of who I am in a traumatic matter. We want to make a change to them. And going hand in hand with meditation is self-observation because as I just mentioned, traumas resurface in our daily life. It's said in the psychological community that trauma forces someone to live permanently stuck in the past. So even if 
they're somewhat present to their daily life, a part of them is trapped in the past and still responding to the past, trying to prevent from happening what has already happened. So if, if I've already been assaulted, I live constantly trying to prevent getting assaulted rather than being able to go back and look at the pain that is there and heal it and let the wound heal, comprehend it for what it is, truly grieve for what I've been through and be able to let it go rather than living as if it is still a threat currently happening to me. And so when we go in meditation, this is based on our self-observation, on the things that we see come up in ourselves every day. In Tarot and Kabbalah, Samarom Deor writes, we need to make ourselves conscious of our own karma. This is only possible through the state of alert novelty. So the alert novelty is being conscious and being awake to what's happening to me, not just externally, but what am I feeling? What am I thinking? How is my body responding? Becoming aware of your body in the chair and how you're feeling emotionally and what thoughts are popping into your mind, not just now, but in every moment. And that takes tremendous energy, which again is another reason why sexual transmutation gives us the fuel that we really need to be able to stay awake consciously throughout the day. Now, when he's talking about karma here, karma comes from the root karman, which means action and consequence, cause and effect. So maybe, uh, you know, our mainstream idea of karma is just, oh, you did something bad to somebody, something bad's going to happen to you. But a much more uh, scientific, for our terms, understanding of karma is that there is no action that does not produce a consequence. You can't throw a rock into a pool of water without producing ripples. Now, the shape that that consequence may take or the time it may take for that consequence to fully bloom, that can be variable. But everything you do, everything you think, everything you feel has an effect. If you feel anger and you think angry thoughts, even if you don't act on it, it will change the way that you interact with the person you're angry at. And at some point, it might even bubble up and express itself fully, maybe in a worse way for being repressed. Everything in our life produces some consequence. And that's why it's even more critical to be able to become conscious of our response to life. Because we might not be able to change what we've done in this life up to now, or even in past lives. But we can change what we're doing now that will alter the future of this lifetime and future lifetimes. And so he goes on to say that every effect in life, every event has its cause in a previous life, but we need to become conscious of this. If you're really working with meditation, and I say this from my own experience, and you meditate on a trauma, and you go deep enough, you will see causes in previous lifetimes. I can give an example of a painful relationship that I was in, where again and again, no matter how much I tried to change, this person, this man and I, would continually repeat the same types of behaviors towards each other. And as much as we might have cared for each other, it continually remained a toxic relationship. And so, you know, years after the fact, when I'm trying to, you know, go on and live my life, and this keeps resurfacing for me, I, I'm studying the, the Gnostic teachings, I'm working with these practices, transmutation, meditation, etc. And I say, okay, well, here's a perfect example. This is something I definitely want to change. So going deeply in meditation and understanding on a regular basis, you know, really working on this day to day until I could get deeper and deeper. First, getting through the defense mechanisms, 
then getting into, well, how am I really feeling because I've pushed it down and denied it for so long that I haven't even objectively seen my experience, and finally going deeper into what caused this. Why would something like this happen? Why did I have to be stuck in so much pain for so long? And being able to see through astral experiences the exact actions that I had done in multiple previous lives and that this person had done in multiple previous lives that caught us in that pattern. Now, this was something that I didn't necessarily believe in or expect to happen. I totally felt like, well, this just happened to me. Whether or not I believe in past lives or whatever, you know, this happened because he was a bad person and I, you know, was young or whatever. And so to truly go and have an experience so vividly where I saw, you know, at instantaneously those multiple past lives, those multiple transgressions in different bodies and different times, but seeing the same energetic cycle was shocking for me. And it produced a type of comprehension that really was so deep, I was able to fundamentally alter the way that I looked at myself. Because I never saw myself really deeply as the aggressor. As much as I might have said, well, yeah, I did bad things, I really felt victimized and hurt. But when I saw, oh my gosh, I did that in past lives, and, and I knew from the experience and how vivid it was, how true it was, that, that I was really there, I wept with remorse because I would have done anything I could to have changed that and to not have hurt this other person that I cared for. But, you know, we have to work from where we're at now. So when we become deeply conscious through self-observation, through what's coming up in our current life, and also through meditation, through going deeply day after day into deeper states of meditation, deeper states of consciousness and comprehension, it can produce a fundamental shift. And I say that, you know, I probably still have more, more work to do on that particular one, but I have profoundly changed and in a permanent way, in which, you know, it, it just wouldn't be possible for me to react in some of the ways that I had before. Um, he goes on in Turo and Kabbalah to, to continue talking about this by saying, the law of action and consequence governs the course of our varied existences, and each life is the result of the previous one. Now, we see repetition on a daily basis. We see that, yeah, you know, when I get in these types of situations, I tend to act the same way, even if I'm trying to change. We see this in our current life. But even more fundamentally, in past lives, we followed very similar trajectories because the same energy propelled us, the same desires, the same fears, the same uh, vices, and even the same virtues in some cases provoked us to repeat the same patterns. And so what we want to do is become conscious of what is propelling us in this lifetime, in this moment, and to have a conscious choice over which direction do I want to go. Do I want to continue to get stuck in deeper and deeper suffering, keep doing things that hurt others and hurt myself? Or do I want to change the trajectory of that energy so that the rest of my lifetime or future lifetimes is much improved from, from this one? <clears throat> so Marlon Vera writes that karma is the law of compensation, not of vengeance. It's cause and effect. It's not some evil old man in the clouds trying to shoot down uh, lightning bolts at you because he's mad at you because you're a terrible sinner. It's cause and effect. You set an energy into motion to be angry at someone and to hurt someone. And that energy produced effects and that person produced effects in the environment. And at some point in time, those effects come back. Because when you're angry at somebody and you hurt them, unless they're very awake and they can transform them, 
that unconscious effect on them produces effects that they want to respond to you with anger, with pain, to make you feel what they feel. And this happens in all actions. Uh, continuing, there are some who confuse this cosmic law with detriment and even with fatality, believing that everything that happens to the human being in life is inexorably determined beforehand. It is true that the acts of the human being are determined by inheritance, education, and the environment, yet it is also true that the human being has free will and can modify his actions to educate his character, to form superior habits, to fight against weaknesses, to fertilize virtues, etc. Karma is a medicine that is applied unto us for our own good. Karma is an opportunity that comes with risks. Karma provides us with the opportunity to see ourselves in a new way, to wake up to our suffering and to change. What did I do to produce this? Maybe not in this lifetime, but in previous lifetimes. And what can I do to change it if I wake in consciousness and respond in a new way? It also comes with the risk of just getting more identified with that intense pain and going deeper and deeper into suffering, continuing the downward spiral. And he concludes uh, with quite a bit of severity. Disgracefully, instead of bowing with reverence before the internal living God within each one of us, people protest, blaspheme, they justify themselves, they stubbornly excuse themselves and wash their hands like Pilate. Karma is not modified with such protests. On the contrary, it becomes harder and more severe. No matter how much we might resist karma or be mad about our situation or say, well, I was a good person and I didn't deserve this and why is this happening, and yell at our inner God, it won't change cause and effect. It's not going to change the energies in nature that are coming to manifest for us. We will reap what we sow. If we do good deeds that produce harmony in our environment, that produce happiness in other people, they will respond to us with that happiness. Now, maybe not immediately, but it's a given that any energy you put into motion, in, into motion has an effect. Now, a lot of times it takes months or years for the good effects to manifest, so we have to really stick with it and be tenacious because we have done, you know, all of us have done bad things in our life, thought bad things, felt bad things acted in harmful ways, hurt people. And so, you know, unfortunately, like I said, we can't undo the past. But we can choose right now to respond to our present life in a new way to change our future. So finally, the last force that we work with to truly transform our trauma is sacrifice for others, particularly those who suffer similarly to us. So we've talked about how we need transmutation to have the energy and the spiritual power to become someone new, to become conscious in new ways. We need meditation to go deeply to get rid of the conditioning that makes us the same old person on repeat all the time. And finally, we need the power of sacrifice because these are the actions that help us to create those new energies in motion so that we don't encounter those same negative experiences that re-traumatize us but so that we can get the healing that we want. As you reap, or as you sow, you will also reap. And so if we want to heal from our trauma, we need to begin by healing others. Uh, I, I want to preface this with a bit of caution, in that if you are in a very traumatized state, and you are feeling overwhelmed, 
be careful what types of situations you put yourself into until you have some healing. If you have healthy and stable relationships in your life, you can begin to really do this work and go deeply in yourself. But if not, it can be unsettling, especially early on. It's very difficult to manage unless we have a real strength of consciousness in our meditation practice. And so if, if you don't have anyone you feel like is a stable and healthy support in your life, it, it can be helpful to see a therapist or to see someone that specializes in trauma who understands the process and can be there to support you. Now you have to do the work, and every therapist will agree that you only get out of therapy the amount of effort you're willing to put into it. But, uh, you know, it's really necessary to have some source of stability because as a consciousness, most of us, we're very weak. And there are a lot of impressions coming in in our lives, so we want to keep ourselves in the beginning in situations that are positive impressions healthy places to go, good people to be around, healthy types of music or activities or yoga, things like that that bring us stability rather than you know going into bars or places where you know it's dangerous if you're able to. Now, not all of us have that luxury, I understand. So doing what we can to produce stability before we really deeply dive into working on our trauma. And so sacrifice for others depends on us and our situation and our willingness. What am I willing to really do to serve other people? And if we have the strength and we start to work on ourselves and we get to a good place, what am I really willing to do to not just serve other people, but to sacrifice for other people, to go above and beyond what is expected of me as a good citizen, and to really expend something of my heart or my time or my talents in the benefit of other people? And this is what is the true power that produces great change. However, as stated in Tarot and Kabbalah, many people who suffer only remember their bitterness and wish to find a remedy for themselves. But they do not remember the suffering of others. Neither do they remotely think of remedying the needs of their neighbors. When we are in intense pain, that's usually all we can think about, how much I'm suffering as a self. Now, if you get into some of the more esoteric teachings of Buddhism and Eastern teachings, you you come to understand that there is no such thing as a self, and yet we deeply believe ourselves to be an individual who has such and such experiences, who reacts in such and such a way. The psyche itself is egotistical. It maintains an illusion of this is who I am, and this is how I feel, and this is what I think. The consciousness is beyond that. But when the consciousness is asleep, it is fused with the psyche in such a way that it feels very strongly that that's who I am. That is my existence. And again, that's why it's important to be able to separate the consciousness a little bit in meditation to observe the self, not as me, but as a structure or as an entity that can be separated from me, that can be observed as its own individual person with its own feelings and wills. And to, to be able to do that requires a good deal of uh, stability, concentration, and relaxation in meditation. Um, so when we are trapped in that egotistical prison of feeling like, oh my gosh, everything bad is happening to me, this happened, and then years later this happened, and this keeps happening, and this keeps happening, that pain is so intense it's nearly impossible to think about anybody else and anybody else's suffering. And yet if we take the time to really think about how much other people are suffering, not as a way of comparing, oh, well, I've got it worse than those people, or they're worse than me, and making ourselves feel guilty, but to just truly comprehend it and feel it deeply in ourselves, to feel the pain of other people, empathize with that and wish, man, I wish things on this planet were better and not so many people are suffering. 
And then to see that we have the power in our limited free time or with our limited gifts to be able to go and help someone else to say, man, if all of us have to suffer this much, I at least want to produce something good for someone else. Then we are able to break out of our prison of egotism a little bit. And it actually lessens our sorrow, actually lessens our experience of being so enmeshed and ingrained in our, in our own individual pain. So I'll conclude with a, a final point from the same book, Thoreau and Kabbalah. If those people who are suffering would think of others, serve their neighbors, feed the hungry, give a drink to the thirsty, dress the naked, teach those who are ignorant, etc., then it would be clear they are putting good deeds on the plate of the cosmic scale of karma. The scale would incline toward their favor. Thus, they would alter their destiny, and good luck would come in their favor. In other words, all of their necessities would be remedied. But people are very selfish. This is the reason for their suffering. No one remembers God nor their fellow men except when they are in desperation. Again, I want to emphasize that this is not a matter of belief and believing oh, well, if I just superficially do a couple nice things and superficially uh, wish good things for others, then all of a sudden my life's going to be perfect and great things are going to happen. It's a matter of action. You don't have to believe in this cosmic law of karma and cause and effect for it to have an impact on you. You don't have to believe that you're going to get wet when it's raining in order for you to step outside and get wet. And this is the same way. We have a big obstacle in American society, and that's cynicism. People genuinely don't believe that if you do good things, then good things are going to happen to you. They think, well, the only people it works out for are the ones who get ahead and step on everybody else. And so this is an obstacle. This is a belief that changes the way we perceive reality, changes the way we respond to reality. If we are deeply cynic, we respond to reality with that conditioning and with that negativity, and we act in negative ways as a response to it, hopelessness, you know, nihilism. And so for us to really change that, we need to be open to trying new things, open to genuinely saying, okay, for the next month, I'll go volunteer someplace, and I'll do something good in my free time that otherwise I wouldn't do. We have the free will to choose that, but do we have enough conscious willpower to actually do it, to stick with it, even when it gets ugly and we are really seeing the suffering, the intense suffering of other people? Are we really willing to stick with it and to see the impact it makes on us? Because that action will not be without consequence. It will change you. It will change your emotional state, your thoughts. You will see the world in a new way if you go into that type of environment, if you do that type of work, if you give of yourself even when you're tired or you don't feel it, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, as I mentioned, it's it's a way that we... We can change things, but to have true faith in karma doesn't come from belief. That faith in karma comes from being awake, observing our life, observing the effects of our actions, the effects of our thoughts, emotions, etc. And that's how we produce a lasting change, is by deeply knowing that if I do this, it will produce this result, then we don't want to produce negative results for ourselves. Not just because we believe and we're scared it's going to produce something negative, but because we've seen it happen multiple times in our lives. We've experienced it. We have gnosis of those consequences. And so we're not going to do it. You're not going to stick your hand in the fire if you know that the fire burns.
All right, so are there any questions? Um, I found it really interesting when you were talking about uh, the cycles of our form of past life. <laughs> so, how does that in this tradition rectify with, or maybe it's like a level of, like, so for example, like the big thing is like all the other and like a lot of your personality all over the West Country that you're talking about coming from age zero to seven, that's things that have happened to you. Absolutely. How your parents felt with you, whatever happened. Um, how much of that is what you're dealing with now as an adult compared to all of the past lives and stuff? Or is that an aggregation of all that? That's a wonderful question. So attachment theory, for those who are unfamiliar, is that if we have stable attachment, a healthy, safe environment in which we grow up, we, we experience relationships in a different way and are much more easily able to have healthy relationships later on in life. If we have an unhealthy or unstable dysfunctional family or environment as a child, it changes the way our brain is wired. And we have much more anxiety and fear and withdrawal in relationships later in life. So you're saying those formative years, not just for attachment, but for all kinds of things in our personality, have a tremendous effect on us, and science has shown this. How much of those formative years is causing the problems we have now in life versus past lives? And yes, you kind of answered your question. Formative years are the compressed aggregate of, of many previous lifetimes. So the formative years is where we see not just lifetimes, um, you know, like, okay, my past 10 lifetimes, but very ancient lifetimes, things that go back, you know, to previous civilizations. And so things that happened, not just as an individual, but as people, as a collective, are encoded into even the way that a fetus forms. If you've ever looked at a human fetus, you know, it goes through phases of evolution, almost looking like a lizard at certain points and then becoming more human. All of our biology, our DNA, our physical existence is a code based on our spiritual existence. It is the physical manifestation of the internal existence. So when we see early childhood traumas and pain like that, it's often from you know, an ancient past of, you know, being caught in a cycle with that person's family, with those other souls or individuals that are in that family of, you know, harming one another. And it's very sad. Um, so, yes. But, uh, but you know, you bring up a good point. We, we shouldn't get too caught up with past lives right, right off the bat. It's actually more important in, in the beginning to look at your life and to look at previous experiences in this current lifetime to just look at what you can observe. You don't want to get caught up in a fantasy of trying to imagine your past lives and, you know, then producing more delusion for yourself. So, so really focusing in the beginning on just observing this lifetime and what I can remember from this lifetime. I'm sitting in meditation and allowing those memories to naturally come up spontaneously. You may be sitting meditating on something and some seemingly unrelated memory pops up from when you were six years old in kindergarten. And then you're like, well, how is that related? That doesn't make any sense. So then you can choose. Okay, maybe I take a break and I'll meditate on that experience in kindergarten and try to comprehend what that was all about. And then as you meditate on that, you may have an inspiration of, oh, now I see. It's not in the mind. It's in the consciousness. This understanding, this comprehension is much deeper than an intellectual, 
oh, A plus B equals C is a very deep knowledge, like, like I gave in my example, of knowing vividly in the experience of seeing my past lives that they were real and that that had been me. You know, even though I was in different bodies, I knew exactly which one was me, you know. And that is something that's not an intellectual, oh, that must be me because she looks like such and such. It's, it's knowing. And in the same way, when a memory comes up and you sit with it, you, go, you sink into it, you're praying for guidance from, from your inner divinity, that can come through. It might not happen in the meditation session. It might happen three hours later when you're washing the dishes. Suddenly it clicks. This is the way it is. When our mind takes a break, consciousness can bring us results. Other questions? Sure. You had mentioned uh, the tradition that correlates with the, the Buddhist tradition that correlates with this master teaching. Uh, is what, what tradition is A Vajrayana tradition. So the most esoteric levels of Buddhism, um, if you go into the essence of those scriptures, are very similar to ours. So Buddhism. Uh, in general, you know, it has many sects, but in general it has three levels of tradition. So um, Shravakayana would be the lowest level. The most fundamental is based on just the literal teachings of the, the Buddha, and that's a very introductory level for people who are just coming into Buddhism is where they usually start. And uh, Mahayana, known as the greater vehicle, has more of these mystical elements into it. And, and at the heart of Mahayana is the service, the sacrifice for others, trying to strive for a lifetime of becoming an enlightened being in order to help humanity, which is suffering so much. So it builds on that root of life is suffering, and I want to escape my suffering by, by transcending that and going into, I want to uh, get into, uh, I want to transcend my suffering because I want to help other beings transcend their suffering. And then Vajrayana, or sometimes called Tantrayana from Tantra, is the highest level of the teaching, the most esoteric. It's traditionally been the most hidden, although in recent years a lot of this has come to light because of the Internet, um, is about expedient methods in which to achieve that enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. So it builds on the other two, and Tantrayana talks a lot about working with sexual energy and transmuting sexual energy. So that's the direct correlation with our tradition. The dialogue in relation to this topic of trauma Related experience in which you interviewed a Buddhist monk who was exiled from Tibet after the Chinese had invaded. He was put in prison for 15 years, abused and experienced many of the traumas and difficulties of that particular region. And to tie into this discussion of trauma, there was an interesting comment that Dan made to the dialogue when he asked him, what was your greatest danger when being in prison? And the monk said, losing my compassion for the Chinese. So, a question we can reflect upon is, how is it, how is the force of compassion how to overcome? Especially tying into this need to serve, to sacrifice for humanity, and what that does for the individual psyche. As you said, we're focusing on, on trauma, if we're focused on our pain, we don't really think about other people. How is it that compassion unlocks, unties that Gordian knot of suffering? It reminds me of another quote. This 
quite popular. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and to realize that the prisoner is you. When we let go of our grudges against other people, even if we feel totally justified in them, and even if those people did very evil things, we free ourselves in a very deep way that it can't be expressed in words. It can only be experienced. If you've ever had a time where you were so angry at somebody and you held on to it for so long, and then finally somehow you were able to forgive them, and the weight was lifted, and you were able to perceive life and even that person without so much pain, then you have experienced it and you know it's true. And compassion for others is a way of liberating ourselves from suffering. It works with this sacrifice for others principle when we do good things for others, when we forgive others, so we can be forgiven. It, it puts into effect powerful causes that transcend previous causes. Um, but also, when we hold on to anger, when we hold on to pain, we are poisoning ourselves. It's not pleasant to feel anger. As justified as we may be in being angry, it is suffering to feel that anger. And it has freedom to feel goodwill towards other people. And no matter what they've done to you, to you know, keep your distance from people if you need to, absolutely. Keep yourself safe. Don't, don't stay in a situation where you're being abused. But to, you know, with that prudence, also be able to not let... Um, not let that pain linger with you, to do this type of work and go deep into healing the pain. It doesn't happen overnight, but through that process. We say that uh, the law of karma, of action and consequence, is uh, the second law. It's the law of nature. And there is a first law, a superior law, which can transcend karma. So all these bad actions we may have done, which we may be freaking out of, like, oh, man, I know I did bad things in this lifetime. Who can imagine past lifetimes? There is a much more powerful law that we can work with in order to create effects and causes that are even more powerful than those that can, in many cases, um, overcome the effects of those laws. They can't erase it, but they can be more powerful than the effects of those other actions is the law of sacrifice. To do good things for others is a law that, you know, is an intelligent law, is a divine law, is a law that works with superior principles the laws of nature are mechanical. Karma, it, it, karma has an intelligence, or I should say it's managed intelligently, but it, it's, it's, a, it's like physics. It happens. You, you can believe whatever you want, and it's still going to happen to you. But sacrifice is a very special divine law. And again, it's something that you can only truly experience the effects of if you've done it, if you've given it a try. Like I said, going for a month and really sacrificing and then you experience for yourself when you sit at the end of that month and you reflect back on it, you know from your experience the effects of that. You don't have to believe in, in it. Many times we have uh, in our imagination or in our fantasies, well, if I go do that, it's just going to be like this. And, and we never actually do something. We just have our projection of the future, our projection of what a situation will be like. Without having experienced it, we think we already know. We need to question our mind, because the mind and the imagination is very powerful to condition us, to produce the effects it wants us to do. But action is much more powerful. Other questions? Trauma not properly addressed and not transformed, would you say that can carry over to another life? Absolutely, yeah. Um, because trauma itself is, is now 
you know, even if it's something good that happens to us, it can it can carry over to pre to future lives. So good things that happen to us that we become very attached to, like um, having a loving relationship with a child, you know, even in a future lifetime, again, we're going to find that same individual in whatever new relationship and have a strong attachment. So even good things, good attachments, which carry over to lifetime to lifetime, are still unconscious and mechanical. We want the free will both from the traumas and the pains that have conditioned us to respond to people or certain people or certain situations in the same way. We want to separate from that and free ourselves and also from any kind of unconsciousness. doesn't mean we stop doing good things or, or loving people or having kind relationships, but it means we have a conscious choice about it. And so trauma, as I mentioned before, is just a really powerful experience of gnosis that, that prevents us from denying suffering. But other experiences, good experiences, can have that same kind of un, untransformed or undigested impressions, that same effect on our, our structure of our psyche. And even though the physical body doesn't carry on from lifetime to lifetime, uh, what we call the astral body, which is made up of our emotions, or the mental body, which is made up of you know, more finer uh, mental substances, carry on from, from lifetime to lifetime in the form of the ego. So that the type of, uh, it's, it's a type of matter that's more protoplasmic, that's more malleable than physical matter, and it can exist outside of the physical world. That's why with astral projection, you can go outside of your physical body and you can still have experiences. You can still walk around and talk, but it's not with your physicality. And after death, those different aggregates of ourselves can move on lifetime to lifetime. So what's important is that if we wake up, we can become very conscious of this experience, not just when we go to sleep, but also after death. We can have more power and more choice in our future lifetimes. And also, um, we can become a different type of being in higher planes of reality. Planes that are more ethereal or subtle planes of nature are just as real as, as the physical plane. In fact, in some way, very much more real. But we're not conscious of them because we are so asleep and so hypnotized by our physical nature. So we want to be aware of our physical nature, but also aware of these other aspects of ourselves. Um, so this can be both higher aspects of our emotional and mental nature, but also lower aspects, because we have a lot of unconsciousness, subconsciousness, infraconsciousness, trapped in negativity. And that, for us, is hell. If we're trapped in negative states, anger, pride, greed, lust, etc., we're continually tortured by those desires and pulled in different ways. From one minute to the next, it can be completely contradictory desires. This is a state of confusion and suffering. And until we become conscious of it and liberate the consciousness out of that, then we, we can't really move fully up. We might have parts of ourselves that are up, up in higher states of consciousness and parts of ourselves trapped in lower states of consciousness. But generally speaking, for most of us, the majority of us is trapped in negativity and lower states of consciousness. And that's the work of meditation, not just with trauma, but with everything, is to enter in meditation into the lower states of our mind, to perceive them not as real and that's who I am, but to perceive them as structures in our mind that project images, that project emotions or fantasies or plans for the future, and to just perceive it without becoming hypnotized and identified with it, to comprehend it for what it is, to turn and look at what is the source of this fantasy that's playing or this fear that's playing, and to be able to comprehend that source and eliminate it through the power of transmutation, which can give birth to something new.
Any other questions? Any other questions? So, just based on that answer, that sounds like, as far as trauma goes, you want to do the work to transform that energy, that experience prior to death, so that you're not going into the next life with that baggage, so to speak. Absolutely. What would be, I don't want to ask too big of a question, but what would be like the complete set of things that you need to be looking to do by death so that you are in the Best space for the next life. Yeah, that's a great, great work. Uh, that's a truly deep work. We do as much as we can, uh, as much as we have the willpower to do. But it's these three things. We actually call um, birth, which is transmutation, death, which is meditation, and sacrifice, the three factors for the revolution of the consciousness. So on a daily basis, doing good deeds, performing good actions, uh, meditating on the unconscious parts of ourselves, whether seemingly positive, negative, or neutral, meditating on them and comprehending them, becoming awake and aware of what is controlling us beneath the surface, and birth, working with transmutation to give birth to new uh, elements in our consciousness and to uh, eliminate those negative structures. Primarily, if we're not working with transmutation, we do not have very much of the substance which can destroy the, the roots of of trauma and of karma. When I act in a certain way, I fuel energy into it. And a lot of times, even if this isn't a lustful situation, even if it's, for example, pride or anger, that takes my creative energy. That takes my life force, the essence of who I am, and invests my energy into that. So that is being born in me as a living type of substance, a living entity almost of itself. And that entity is anger. And that anger has a will of its own, a will to speak a certain way, to think a certain way, to act a certain way. And so until I take that same force, draw it out of the anger through comprehension, and use my own life force to say, I'm, you know, I'm eliminating this, then nothing can be changed on a permanent level. We might be able to do some superficial change, but to really achieve a deep and lasting change, we can't do that. And if you read the book, you'll see that that work with the sexual energy is the work with the Divine Mother. Um, so, so, you know, I, I didn't want to get too much into it today, but we are working with the power of the Divine Mother or the power of the Holy Spirit, the third Logos, is uh, that power of creation and destruction, of birth and death. And so that's the power we work with when we utilize that energy. Yeah. So doing as much as we can before death will radically change it. It's like an exponential curve. The more that you are able to do, then the more that you will be able to do. So if I do this much, then exponentially I'll be able to do that much more. And from that point, I'll be able to do so much more. Karma really restricts us. And the more unconscious we are and the more karma we have weighing us down that hasn't been transformed, our actions become very limited by our circumstances, by the types of people around us, by our environment, etc. And the more that we work with the little 3% of free will that we have to to break that karma, to transform that karma, to work with sacrifice and conscious actions, then we get 5% free will and 10% of free will. And, you know, exponentially, the more free will you have, suddenly you have a lot more control over your situation. We see people in the world who have way more freedom than many of us. And we also see people in this world who have very difficult situations. You know, to have, have mental illness, for example, is a type of karma. It's a structure that conditions your ability to act and feel. And, you know, there are medications and things we can do 
that can help, but the very conditioning of our psychology is a part of our matter, a part of our experience of life, and is formed by previous actions of karma. I also would say before we awaken our consciousness physically and in the internal plane, the more prepared for death we are. So in Buddhism, we teach to prepare for death by meditating daily on that inevitability. And by becoming more conscious and working on our traumas, those negative states of anger and pride, the more we'll remember and be awake. Because for most people, especially in the West, who've never had any type of training, they don't remember where they came from, their past lives. As we were talking about the theory, or what people think is a theory, it's not a theory for people who are experiencing that in themselves. So the more we awaken, then, as we were saying, we have more freedom to, more... Freedom of perception, our, too. Yeah. More perception. More perception. And, and then if we take another body, we will remember where we came from, what level of work we obtained. And in that way, we have more opportunities to continue to go deeper and to resolve those traumas that trap us. The capacities of our consciousness are practically infinite, but... We're not aware of that because we utilize the consciousness so very little as compared to our intellect or the physical body. You know, there's, you read and, and whatnot, there's so many different, I guess, versions of meditation and different even like uh, physical ways of experience meditation or practicing meditation. Would you say that they're all um, innately uh, trying to achieve the same Thing, or are they based off of the different types of practices that you do or trying to be awakened to a certain level of consciousness or uh, area, I guess, of consciousness? That's a good question. So do all different forms and techniques of meditation produce the same results or strive for the same results? No. Um, I do believe that there are a variety of genuine meditation techniques that can, regardless of which one you work with, if you work with it diligently enough, uh, help you along the way to, to achieve the awakening of consciousness. But much of that is determined upon your own conscious effort. So even if you use the genuine meditation technique from a given tradition, that has helped lots of people to uh, awaken, become enlightened. If you're not activating consciousness, it's not going to work for you. There's also, you know, as, as, uh, as the inf internet proliferates all kinds of things. There are some uh, some meditation techniques which are actually could be harmful from a psychological perspective. Meditation techniques that say, okay, go and fantasize about your ideal life and really invest in that is not going to awaken your consciousness, but it's going to further hypnotize your consciousness and could even, you know, inhibit your ability to see reality or make you more dissatisfied with reality. And so... Uh, yeah, we should be careful. Also, different techniques produce different effects. So when I talked about pranayama as an example, we have a variety of different pranayama techniques uh, from different traditions, many of which are genuine pranayama techniques, and each of which would achieve this transmutation of sexual energy, but also with slight variations. So I believe that meditation is much the same way. You know, when I work with different mantras or different meditation techniques, 
I, I can achieve different results, but all of which, if, if they're a good technique, awaken my consciousness. Or perhaps one awakens my consciousness so that I'm more aware of my heart and, and activate my heart and feel more compassion, whereas another awakens my consciousness and helps me to astral project, or another awakens uh, you know, my ability to try to perceive a past life. So we have hundreds of thousands of techniques in our tradition that, you know, many of which also come from, from other traditions, religions around the world, um, all in the books. So we're happy to refer you to books that have those practices if it's helpful. Another point, too, is that, as you were mentioning, in Buddhism, there are these schools, and every religion has its system, from in Buddhism, Shabakayana, the introductory level, Mahayana, greater people, and the most expedient Tantra. So meditation is taught within the introductory levels are due to a specific focus to teach the beginning practitioner how to concentrate. Work with ethics, upright action, upright thoughts and feelings with ease, so that the mind becomes stable. So if you think of the mind like a lake, if we keep throwing stones, negative thinking, impression into the lake, it's going to be churning, unstable. And from that point of view, we can't address any trauma. Because in order to see clearly, your mind has to be perfectly still. So in the introductory levels of Buddhism, or any tradition, we teach ethics, karma, serenity. Develop a serene mind. And the meditative practices of that tradition, or any introductory level, will teach you how to develop stability. Because it was explained in the lecture that we have to balance our three brains. And a brain in esotericism has to do with any type of machine that processes matter, energy, consciousness. So our intellect is not just the only brain, because we have many forms of intelligence in the heart, Sex. In fact, our entire physiology is a marvelous machine that can transform energy. But if we don't use or balance those centers through ethics, upright thought, feeling, action, we can't really enter the state of meditation we need to really go to the heart of our problem. And once we have that type of serenity developed, then you can start to develop more compassion for others. Because you see that other people who don't have that training are in tremendous suffering and affliction. And that's the Mahayana level, the middle ground, the greater people. And the meditations taught in that tradition are more profound and demand a type of diligence and foundation. So all the meditations, they, they lead towards the highest stages in which we're meditating not just for ourselves, but for humanity. And that's when we can do practices like Tantra, or as we say in this tradition, perfect attachment, to utilize energy in the highest way to transform not only ourselves, but others. And that's what we're leading towards. So it's important that when we approach meditation, we, and in our tradition we have many practices, to work with where we're at. And in most cases, we after you start at the very bottom, as you sit to reflect on your mind, you start to feel and see that it's difficult to concentrate, or we have no serenity in the beginning. 
So, in our school, we teach all three levels of Buddhism at once. Because students are at different levels and at different regions. So, if you look at other traditions, you may find some schools will only focus on the basics. Some very high. But the problem becomes not having a practical foundation in the steps because they help to build off one another. It's a great explanation because everybody wants to jump right to Tantra and right to the most advanced practices. Like, oh, I want to get out of my body and speak to the Lord of Karma, Anubis, or whatever the case may be. But if we don't have the ability to relax physically, emotionally, mentally, to separate our consciousness from it, to awaken our consciousness from those three brains, and to, to have a concentration, to maintain our attention and our awareness on the object of our meditation, then we're not able to even work with those more advanced techniques. We're going to try them, and they're not going to work. Or if they do work by chance, it could end up being a harmful situation. So really establishing ourselves in the basis uh, allows us to then gradually work our way up to those more advanced practices. Like the, uh, the example I gave about going deeper and deeper and deeper in meditation and finally into, uh, you know, a past life experience that, that was built on, you know, months and years of, of really working with meditation and basics, working with concentration and relaxation. And if you stay for the optional meditation after this lecture, you'll be able to try a, a basic technique with us in which we're going to meditate exactly on balancing those three brains and working with uh, relaxation and concentration. Maybe finish with uh, talking about how the magic of yoga works, because I know, especially in North America and the West, when we hear of magic, we think of right. circus tricks or, or all sorts of people who uh, perform illusions. But how does the roses, the magic, or the soul of the plant? Go ahead, with our please. Practice? So, uh, with that practice, and in our tradition, we use a lot of exercises to work with nature. Magic, in its true sense, is how we, as a consciousness, can communicate with divinity, can interact with the soul of nature, and all of the vegetable kingdom, the mineral kingdom animal kingdom has its type of soul in different gradations of complexity. So minerals are obviously very simple. Plants more evolved. They process and channel more energy in nature. Animals, of course, are more developed. They are collectively developing the type of will, which is different than plants. Well finally, we have the humanoid or the intellectual animal, human being. The soul anima with intellect. So we work with plants primarily because the souls of those types of creatures have power. We learn to work and communicate to command the souls of plants to help heal. Because every plant in nature has its type of property. It can heal, can perform medicine. We know this very extensively from indigenous cultures which still retain a type of wisdom that our modern orthodoxy and medicine does not support. The rose is a very elevated plant. It is the queen of flowers. And if you know astrology, each plant relates to a different planet. 
because each plant channels the forces of the cosmos, transmits. So as you see that human being is a machine that transmits forces, likewise minerals, plants, animals. That's why you have such diversity in nature, because each living entity channels force. It is interesting that the rose is especially powerful for healing the heart. Even conventionally, we may give roses to our loved ones in order to show love, especially romantic love. Because the rose, even, you know, instinctually has a marvelous presence. And even within the internal planes, the soul of that plant is very elevated. You can command the soul of the rose to work with the divine hierarchies of the angels relating to the planet Venus, the star of love. So as to invoke that intelligence, bring it to our home, and deposit medicine within the glasses. So you notice that so you have the glass facing the east, you drink before breakfast. The glass towards the north before lunch. And then the glass towards the west before dinner. That sequence parallels the trajectory of the sun. And we know that Venus is the star of the dawn. It channels the forces of the divinity called Christ. It's a force. I can particularize in any person who is prepared. So you pray to your inner being, my God, my divine mother. Command the elements of the rose to work and deposit healing within the glasses by invoking the angels of that force, that ray, that particular influence of love. So that we can heal trauma. So at least gain stability to the point that we can meditate further. And you drink. In that sequence, very simple. Healing is very simple. Prayer, relaxation, concentration, faith. Not belief. We have experiences we know. If you wake in the dream state, you can personally converse with the elemental in nature. And personally, I have been in the habit over the years to meditate on certain elementals that plants I have in my home in which I've been able to communicate with those entities, those beings, who are still in Eden, with innocence. They haven't entered into all the complex problems that we have in the humanoid kingdom, through the process of evil. But they're very simple. They're like angels, but great in a smaller degree. So you can pray, and, and with faith, you have the experience, you know that these elements exist. That the rose kind of heal pain. Personally, I've used the roses when I've had trauma, certain betrayals or conflicts that I could not reconcile. And by working with the glasses you drink over a sequence of a few days, when the roses wither, you can remove them. And then your pain is immediate, at least at the surface, to the point that. We have enough stability where we can meditate and then look at the problem. Because in the moment when we're afflicted, we can't think. We can't concentrate. And those elementals, those souls of nature, are very powerful. They work and obey divinity. So the rose is, of course, held a very high regard in 
certain traditions. The Rosicrucians, the first Gnostics, the Rosicrucian Gnostic Church. The rose is a symbol of the transformation of the soul into the beauty of God. And of course, the rose is very effective for You can work with it however much you need. It's simple. Pray, relax, concentrate. And you drink it like medicine. The good thing is that there's no side effects. Of course, some people in this day and age have traumas and illnesses in the body. That because that karma is crystallized in the body, some people need to take a, a drug to be able to find balance. But the wonderful property of this practice is that there are no side effects. Water, roses, magic. Because those substances that divinity places are not physical. They're etheric, astral, mental, spiritual, eternal. So it's a in conjunction with whatever people may have to do to find balance. Whether it be medication or whatnot, therapy. The roses is exceptional. Simple, but profound. And that ritual is as effective as your prayer. And prayer is something simple. You don't need formula. When you talk to the energy energy. You say, My Father, my God, help me. Use your words and just ask for that healing. And experiment. And that practice is, of course, effective when we are working in transmutation. Work with your creative energy because your prayer will be empowered when you use that force. And that way it opens the doorway into the doorway. Any other questions? Okay, well, thank you. We'll take a break, and like I said, if you feel like sticking around, we'll do a short uh, optional meditation based on the lecture we talked about today. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at chicagognosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.